reminding Timothy to now go and instruct these wandering pastors and elders uh, that there would not be what he sees happening in Ephesus. And that is, on the one hand, a kind of moral laxity and and ambiguity uh, because that's what happens. If the only thing you see the law doing is providing moral clarity, well, you have to reduce it in order to live under it. If there's nothing that enables you to go into the law and to be and to see the fullness of the law and the clarity that it brings to our moral condition, then what is your choice? Well, one, it's to reduce it so that you can feel a little more self-righteous within it. And that leads to either hedonism on the other hand or Phariseeism on the other. Hedonism, reducing it to the parts that I feel comfortable with so that I can then politicize it in our culture and in our world in a way that I can point out everyone else's abuse of the law. Or, again, that, that's hedonism, or the hedonism, we're just laxity about it. We, don't, we see the law as somehow contrary to grace. It's a huge error in Ephesus, and it's no less huge today. Today, then, we consider the sixth commandment, according to Peter, I mean to Paul. This idea of murder or unjust killing. And again, we want to rediscover the the full use of the law and the manner in which it's going to bring us, yes, mostly we're going to talk about moral clarity in an age of violence. But then we will turn and to see within that law a clarity about ourselves, which I venture to say will bring us all to our knees, crying out for a Savior. And so first of all, let's, let's ask this question of moral clarity. What was Paul talking about here. And the first thing we have to understand, and this is where I want to give you five more little principles. What Paul understood is throughout the scripture that, that when one thinks about the moral law, they were, it, they were interpreted throughout the clarity of the rest of scripture in, in these five principles. Let me try to help you out with that. So first of all, Paul's understanding of the law within this biblical perspective was according to five principles. Number one, that the moral law is perfect. Now, by perfect, I mean that in the old English sense, that it is complete insofar as it's rooted in something higher than itself. It's perfect in the sense that it has, it's derived from that which is transcendent to our world and to ourselves. The second ten aspect about the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments are less considered to be a a complete sort of ethical code as they were considered as like titles or ethical categories of which the rest of the law, qua Deuteronomy, Leviticus, etc., and then all the way through Scripture with the prophets, even into the New Testament, where the jot and tittles of the law that Christ would refer to would all become uh, more, more clearly discerned and discernible. So that second principle is don't think of the Ten Commandments as just this complete ethical code. They are the title heads of an ethical code that will be filled in with it. And so we'll need to do that. Third, Paul understood, as with the prophets of old, that the laws themselves are more than just concrete behavioral things. Thou shalt not do blank in that more concrete sense. But they understood that all of the attitudes and speech both the overt and covert behaviors, they are all 
that, that lead towards or encourage a particular sin are then part of that sin. Let me say that again, that all attitudes, speech, and, and, and communication, and overt, covert, all of that, insofar as it leads to this kind of ultimate and behavioral categorical sin, is then part of that sin. Now, boy, that's starting to get you, isn't it? Attitudes, heart, motives, feelings. So that's number three. Number four, and this is really the clincher, laws which are stated in the negative, that is forbidding something, are implicitly meant to be interpreted on the positive as well. This is why you would hear Christ say things like, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and he would give a contrast. It wasn't enough not to kill, but the point of the not to kill, if rooted in the perfection of the law, was the sanctity of life itself. And therefore, it's all those things you do in the positive to save and to encourage life. It's not just a, a, an ethical code against violence to life. It's an ethical code for flourishing life. And finally, as if this weren't enough, the law is spiritual. That is to say, at the core, it directs us to our entire person. We are both body and mind and emotions and all that stuff that's the outward person, but we're also a spiritual person. God created humanity in his image and breathed his spirit into humanity. And there is a relational connection with God, wherein the law, therefore, is not just outward or just emotional or things that that psychology and sociology and all the rest can study. But there's a spiritual element to the humanity. So did you see those five? The moral law is perfect. The moral law is, is further clear. All the jot and tittles are fi- further cleared out, uh, are cleared up in the ethical system throughout the rest of the scripture. Attitude, speech, the heart, all of that, insofar as it leads to this ethical code is part of it. Laws which are negative imply the positive, and the law is spiritual. So let's take those five things briefly, and let's walk it through this command. The sixth of the Decalogue, you shall not kill unjustly. Now, it's perfection. It's ultimately, of course, rooted in the intrinsic sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life is is the image of God itself that makes it separate from all other creatures. Now, already, we're getting some moral clarity in modern life. Already, we're beginning to see that that's becoming more ambiguity. There's more ambiguity. Today, we hear of humanity, and and we think of killing, and we think of killing humanity, but, but it's no different sometimes than killing other animals. But more than that... It's rooted in the sanctity of the image of God, a unique and intrinsic value. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. That's Genesis. It's further explained in Genesis 9. Whoever therefore sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that person's blood be shed for his own image. God made humankind. Human life is valuable, regardless of a personal value to society. Human life is sacred, not because of its utilitarian value as determined by this culture versus that. I mean, what would make you valuable? Well, 
If you're a utilitarian ethicist, then you'd say you're valuable insofar as your value is to the economy, maybe. So now you are valuable in an agrarian economy, but you're not valuable in a communications economy or something like that. Of course, we know that's not true. But deeper still, what makes you valuable? Is it, it's amazing if you stop and think about it with all this genetic code and, and things that we're talking about doing in, in modern life, that, that we're beginning to place valuative judgments on anything from the color of hair and eyes to, to all sorts of things, uh, mental capacity, emotional capacity. Think about what's happening. We need moral clarity here. What makes humanity so sacred has nothing to do with those attributes of humanity, but rather it's at that deeper level of spirituality that we are made in the image of God. That is to say that unlike any other creature, it's our relation to God in this imaging vocation specifically that makes us so unique. And therefore we begin to appreciate the diversity of humanity, even in manners that today would be described as perhaps uh, handicaps and, and even certain other aspects, we would say, hold it, though, that, that person. I mean, what is a handicap? Doesn't that bother you a little bit? I mean, is it a handicap to be slow and not fast with your legs? Is it a handicap to, uh, and you can just go right through it. Sure, there may even be aspects that we would say are incomplete in terms of the normal human attribute. Missing an arm, whatever it is. And while we may even proceed to to fix some of this stuff, but fundamentally, that human being has sanctity because of its sacredness or his or her sacredness. And so the first level, this law is perfect, it's rooted in this intrinsic sanctity of human life. But of course we know that, that when we therefore meet our neighbor, no matter who the neighbor, we know that we've met someone who bears the image of God. As if we could call one another your majesty. Such royal and priestly worth is attributed to that person. But that's because of a second level. On level two, the image of God, you see, is particularly related to God's own decree in Scripture. In Genesis 2, it says, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Man, humanity, I mean. You see, there's a sovereignty over life and death that only God, who is the only being higher has any sovereign control over. That is to say, God is both the Lord of life, and therefore it is only God who can take life by whatever means he decides. See, that raises the ethical category of what then is a just and unjust killing. And ultimately, it is a killing that we would say that God decreed. And what are those means by which God then decrees someone to die? If you're an ethicist, that's the conversation that we're about to have. If you're a Christian ethicist. Now, if you're a secular ethicist who've taken God out, this this perfection of the law, if we detach the law from the perfection 
of God himself and his sovereignty over life, then then we're going to make all sorts of of kinds of relative uh, justice killings. Relative to this human versus that human. Relative to this value versus that value in society. But you see, it's all horizontal now. There's not this vertical. First Samuel talks about this. The Lord kills and brings to life. He alone can bring down to Sheol and raise him up again. That is God only is God. And humanity made in the image of God is so sacred that not even humans have the power to kill another human. As we'll see, except insofar as appointed by God's decree to do so. And that then, of course, leads to a third level of this perfection of of the law, rooted in the transcendence of God. That is, that unjust killing is ultimately then violence against God himself, vis-a-vis the image. To do violence to God is to do violence. Is, is by virtue of the violence that we would then show or demonstrate to one another. Now, think about it. That's what Jesus said. You, know, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And the other is likened unto it. And I always wonder, what does that mean exactly? Well, that's to say that, that you violate the first five commandments when you violate the second five commandments, precisely because he's talking about your relation to those made in the image of God in the second five. Now do you see the meaning, thy word is perfect, O Lord, as the psalmist would cry out? Perfect in its, in, its, in its relationship to a transcendent purpose that trumps all other purposes and, and, and whatnot in our lives? So that's the first one. The second one then is, okay, so we have this, that you should not murder, is one translation. Probably a better one is, is kill unjustly. Let me explain that. This idea of murder, it's translated, but it actually, there's another Hebrew word for for murder that's distinct from the one that's used here. And come to think of it, or come to see it, there's also, there's about eight, by the way, Hebrew words for for to kill. So don't think all words kill are the same. Some killing is going to be described in certain ways without a moral moral category attached to it. Others will. But the key here in this word, even in the Greek that Timothy used, you could just translate it as murder, but it's a little better translated, any illegal killing. Any illegal or unjustifiable killing. Again, there's several Greek words I could go through and show you how they, they compare, for instance... But this is a word that anyone who commits murder will be brought before a judge. That's how this word is used in translated kill. As in, there's something to be discerned here that hasn't yet been discerned. Was it illegal? So there's another use of the word, in, there's another English word, I mean, he, Greek word for kill. And you see how that, dis, that helps you see that. You are to bring someone who killed another before a judge. Why? To see what kind of killing it is. And we see that in the Old and the New Testament. And so here we have this reality beginning to emerge. It doesn't say, the, the, the Sixth Commandment does say, thou shalt not kill. 
Only the King James uses that a long time ago, and even then in a different uh, semantic context. Some will say, "Do thou shalt not or you shall not murder. Others, and I think better, would say, you shall not kill unjustly. And so here we have the clarity begging. Okay, what is unjust killing? Well, let's look at the scripture. Now we're getting into some jot and tittles, as Christ talked about it. It is not, notice, a prohibition against all killing, the sixth commandment. The Bible and most Christians throughout history recognize that there are some situations where the taking of life is not only permitted, but even warranted as a means of honoring and preserving the sanctity of life. Now, I know this is getting a little bit politically uncomfortable. It's so important as a church that we transcend the politicization of morality. And we really go to the word and let it speak. And so, for instance, this is not a prohibition against self-defense or the defense of the innocent. Self-defense, and by extension, defending other persons, family members, or whoever is not wrong and could be argued as even required in order to keep the Sixth Commandment. I'll give you an illustration. In Esther, chapter 8, verse 11. By these letters, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to assemble and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them with their children, women, and to plunder their goods. This is this idea that, 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 that there is just cause, and we come down through church history, and St. Augustine popularized the phrase just war theory. But it's just this simple idea that life is sacred and that according to our various vocations as decreed by God, we are decreed by God, therefore, to preserve all life, innocent life, that is. That is, life that is unjustly being killed, even if against those who would be the unjust killers. There's a priority in the ethical code called just law. It applies to our police. It applies to our militaries, but only, if you'll notice through Scripture, it never applies to the individual, except acting on behalf of your office. Let's say whether it's the vocation of a parent or the vocation of, a, of, of an, you know, someone for the, the government. But, but I, I, it, there's these three major spheres, if you will, of vocations, and, and it begins to work itself if you're familiar with Augustine, but particularly if you're familiar with the Scriptures. So by extension, therefore, there's, it's not a prohibition against just war. But now slow down. I know what you're thinking, oh gosh, where's he going with this? By war, it is meant, of course, both domestic and foreign. So let's get that in there. But war is just when it is to protect the shedding of innocent blood. That's the key issue here, all through Scripture. By innocent, we don't mean people without sin, but people who are not the aggressors against life. Stephen Carter here at Yale says it this way, war is horrible and should be fought rarely and only to avoid greater horrors. But it is a vocation in the scripture. Acts chapter 10, 1 recognizes the vocational legitimacy of Cornelius. And we also see, of course, in Romans 13, and I'll turn to that in, in a minute, but, but there is a, a qualification. What exactly then constitutes just war? in any given specific instance, for instance. Well, it's always open for debate. Why? 
Because there's a specific instance that will need to apply to the general principle or ethic of just or justified killing. I mean, how does globalization impact the question? Technological advances. When is someone really in danger? National security is much more complex, as you know, than perhaps mere biological or genetic and nuclear warfare. There are all kinds of threats, but then there's economic threats that some people will... Is that justifiable war? And how do you relate the economic threats to the the systemic issues of the biological threats. Now, this is stuff that I just put out there as not to be resolved here, but something, stuff that has to be argued and debated every single time with great diligence. I mean, anyone that knows war knows that war is always horrible. The people I know that have come back from it have explained it to me that it just sucks. There's incredible moral ambiguity in war. War is something that we should abhor and hate. And yet at the same time, war is something that is not only allowed, but sometimes is warranted for the sake of human dignity and life. Think about it this way. It's not a prohibition to go to war. But it's always an admonition to be careful and to be careful as to discern the justness of it as according to that principle of the defense of innocent life. Notice thirdly, not a prohibition against capital punishment. Now I know this is getting even tougher and I'm feeling it, man. I'm feeling it. You know, this is very... mm. But you just can't with Scripture say it's a prohibition against capital punishment as a lawful revenge. Again, this is perhaps a very difficult thing to say, and that we would rightly teach as a matter of individual ethics that revenge is wrong. But listen to Romans 12, 19. Beloved, on the one hand, he says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. This is not uh, warranted. There's no warrant for the vigilante. Never avenge yourselves. Let that sink in but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, first of all, distinguish this. Again, just war or just killing is only for God to do. No one can kill anyone except God. He's the only one with the authority to do it. And then it begs the question, what are those means by which God executes his just killing? Notice what happens right after he says this. In chapter 13, this was 12, 19, chapter 13, he says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Everything's about God here. God who instituted this authority. God who is the decreer of this authority. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. And then he goes on and says this, it is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. And then he goes on to say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. If you go into the Old Testament, this is not new, what Paul is teaching. It's part of the jot and tittle of the law of murder. You see it in Exodus 21, whoever strikes a person much morally shall be put to death. That's 
capital punishment. 2115, whoever strikes father, whoever does it, but they're all related life for life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall that blood, a person's blood be shed. And the question, I mean, whether or not and when modern governments ought to utilize capital punishment is not relevant, though, to this context. It's justified, and yet the question is, it's not necessarily prescribed. In other words, by a good and necessary inference of Scripture logic, which is what we describe as how we interpret the law to preserve Christ's exclusive crown rights over it, unless we see the law demand a capital punishment, it's one thing to say it's warranted by the circumstances on the ground, etc., etc., etc. That's the debate. But it's another thing to say that, that it's required. And we see that as well. My point is merely to say that the ninth, sixth commandment doesn't prohibit capital punishment, but nor does it necessarily prescribe it. But as a Christian, that means in this day and age that we can't then go out and say, it's unchristian. Capital punishment is unchristian. It is. It is not unchristian. It's another thing to say capital punishment is warranted. Well, that's a debate that would consider all sorts of situations. Abortion. I know, this is, y'all having fun? <laughs> I mean, it's just like hitting it all, but we need the moral clarity. I promise you, it's going to get somewhere. It's going to get somewhere. So hold on with me. But that's a crucial question, isn't it, today? Is abortion wrong? Well, as a church, and according to the sixth commandment, the answer is quite frankly, yes. If and then, how do we define the taking of life? Well, it presupposes when does life begin? And here's the thing. Given the sanctity of life, the scripture always biases life in its definition. There are a lot of issues here, I know. But what's clear is that a child in the womb of a mother is considered in the image of God in scripture. Now when does a embryo or when does a per, when does something become a child? Well, the scripture doesn't address some of the medical things that we have today, but at the very least, we would have to say that until we have scripture to say otherwise, it would begin at conception. Because we have overwhelming evidence from scripture that a child in the womb of a mother is sanctified in the image of God. Psalms 139, you know, talks about how I was formed in my inward part. You knit me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. That is a developmental term. And your book was written then, and this is the key, the sovereignty of God over it. In your book were written all the days were formed for me, even when none of them had yet existed. That is, before my birth. Before my birth, God was sovereign over this life. The burden of proof is, must be life until proven not to be life. But here's where we need to be careful. Is it murder for someone to commit abortion? Does this justify the church and its self-righteousness to go about condemning those who have abortions as murderers? Not according to Scripture. Remember, to say someone murders is different than to say that there's an unjustified killing. Murdered, not only in our world, but even in the biblical world, affirmed intent. 
It infirms a malicious act. Murder is not the same as unjustified killing. Quite the contrary. We should understand that in the context of abortion, let's say even in the case of rape and incest, and here I'm going to have to get really politically incorrect. I know if this was all about politics, I would probably say accept in cases of rape and incest. But we as Christians can't say that. It's tough, I know. Listen me out, because I'm going to go somewhere with this. Why can't we? Because only God is sovereign over life. And we believe as Christians that God, to be God, is sovereign over all things whatsoever that happen. It's a tragic and horrible, horrible situation that happens when violence is done to another human being, and out of that violence comes life. It's very interesting in Scripture how in Leviticus it's described what happens when a woman uh, is, is violated. The baby is sanctified and protected in the law. Let's say, put the contrary on the side, an abortion issue. What happens when someone is molested who's pregnant in the Scripture? Well, it's very clear in Leviticus, the Latin fiddle. If the baby is killed, then the capital punishment would come upon the one who, who did harm to this woman. If the baby is not killed, then there would be another punishment executed upon this, this, this violent person and, and, and commensurate to whatever was happened, that happened to the woman, but not a, a capital punishment unless the woman died. And so we begin to see the principle of Scripture, that God decrees all things whatsoever. So how would we handle a situation so tragic as a violent conception? Well, by, certainly we don't call the person a murderer if under her situation, whether she wasn't a, doesn't understand the sanctity of life, whether it is that she has, sees no way of uh, seeing redemption through it, which is probably the biggest issue. But see, that's exactly what's the wrong with doing the law the way I'm doing it so far. I keep dangling this out here for you. Because the law will bring moral clarity. But if we stop the use of the law there, we will not know what to do with it to bring any kind of redemption into this situation. And that's exactly Paul's problem. But still we're at the moral clarity, and let me continue. And so we do believe that, that what is prohibited includes abortion. It would include, of course, uh, Uh, euthanasia, if you mean by that, and here it has to be careful, our catechism will explain even what Scripture says, that that, that part of what it means to to hold the sanctity of life, it's not only that we're not to kill someone, but on the positive, that we're to provide any means possible to keep this person and his sanctity preserved. But now that raises the question, at what point is something... What, what, something, what point would you call someone who makes that horrible decision? Now, again, euthanasia versus assistant suicide, those are getting merged together here a little bit. But be careful. We're not going to use the word murder. Murder implies malicious intent. Don't call someone struggling with this a murderer. It's the question, just a good ethical question that derives from the sanctity of life connected to the image of God. 
When is it that we're doing violence to God vis-a-vis the violence, say, to an older person? And here's the key. We have to really be careful. How do we define death now? And, of course, in the medical world, I know that there's two major uh, criteria, and they have to be both and. It's, it's when this heart stops and the brain that's dead. It's both being brain dead and no more heart pump. But even then, what, what, what is lawful in terms of keeping the, the heart pumping or the brain, you know, circulating with blood? These are some difficult issues, and we need to be humble and listen and talk. Because certainly Christianity is not, though, on the other hand, paranoid about death. Death is something that we as Christians embrace in the cross of Jesus Christ, awaiting the resurrection. We grieve not as other people grieve. It's worthy of grieving death, but we don't grieve the same way. And we don't have such an aversion to dying because we don't believe that we ultimately die. But there's a temporary separation, body and spirit, people to people. So we talk, we listen to each other, we listen to our scientists, but we most especially listen to Scripture. And we ask the question, what is to promote the sanctity of this life? Whether it's in the beginning of life and abortion questions, whether it's the end of life and euthanasia questions. Okay, then. That was number one. As true as this idea of the law. No, that was number two. We talked about the law and its relationship to God, the intrinsic value of human life. We talked about number two, the law clarified by the jot and tittles, and we hit a couple of jots and tittles here. Now we get into other things. Because at this point I might say, well, who among you is a, is, is a murderer? Or who among you is, has, is unjustified killing? And maybe some of you might be in that category. I understand. But it goes deeper. It's attitude, speech, overt behavior, which encourages a particular sin. It's also then called a sin of murder or unjustified killing. Notice Exodus 20. You shall not unjustifiably kill. Listen to the jot and tittle of Leviticus 19. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Hear that, I am the Lord? I'm the only one that can kill. I'm the only one that can do vengeance. I'm the only one that has justifiable wrath upon people. Only in the service of love and justice. And now, you thought that was Jesus who said that, right? For it was Jesus, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. I used to not know what the heck he was talking about. What is that jot and tittle thing? He's talking about everything we're talking about right now. But now he's talking about what? Not just the behavioral aspects of killing, but the attitudinal and speech aspects that lead to it. Listen to what Jesus says right after he said these words in chapter 5, verse 17 of Matthew. Listen to what he says two verses later. For you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Really, Lord? Yeah, really. The law of God and the intrinsic relation to the image of God, which is to do violence to God himself, to do violence to the image of God is such to even speak violently, to speak to someone as to make them a fool is liable to the judgment of fire. Now this is where if all we know to do is politicize morality, we don't know what to do with this. This is where if we cut the use of the law to just the first use, which is moral clarity, we now are afraid to go there. We say, oh, it can't mean that. Are you telling me that God would be justified in sending me to hell because I called someone a fool? If we understood the perfection of the law as revealed and rooted in the relationship to God himself, we would say, yes, it, it, it would. But see, if we don't got the next two, remember, I keep holding you up, humility and salvation, then we're going to have to start reducing the law and we're going to say, oh, that was hyperbole. Really? You see it in the Old Testament? You see it in the New Testament? You're going to see it in James? You're going to see it in Romans? I could go read all these passages that say the same thing. Where James is going to say, just, it, just hating your brother is to violate the whole law. Listen to the way that the Heidelberg says it. What does God require in the Sixth Commandment? Answer, you heard it, saw it today that neither in thoughts nor words nor gestures, much less in deeds, that I dishonor, hate, wound, or kill my neighbor. I mean, can you imagine how this would revolutionize our use of Twitter or any kind of media conversation? Can you imagine? We, the church, sadly have become so secular in our understanding of the law even if we're born-again Christians. That was the problem in Ephesus. It's a problem today. We don't need to compromise the law in order to live with it. We have a better way. All three uses of the law. Moral clarity, yes, let's hold it. And this is part of it, as it will lead us to humility and salvation. What are the sins forbidden in the, ninth, in the Sixth Commandment, according to our confession, 350 years old, he goes and talks about the outward things, and it goes on and says this. It's the neglecting or withholding the lawful and necessary means of preserving life. We've spoken of that. And then he goes on. Sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distracting cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of anyone. Mm. Wow. Jesus said, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, and on and on he goes. How's your heart? Are we unlawfully killing in our heart? At this point, I think it's fair to say that, well, we feel condemned. 
But now it even goes deeper. Remember that fifth question? Not only is it the heart and all the attitudes that flow out it that's part of violating the sixth commandment, but now it's laws which are negative or implicitly positive. This is so clear in both the Old and New Testament. This isn't a New Testament concept. You shall not murder. And then Leviticus is going to go through and describe all these ways that we're supposed to preserve life. Paul does the same thing. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, having put away all this falsehood, and he talks about all this stuff, he's, you know, he says about like anger, etc. Then he goes on and says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. That's the negative in the form of the attitude, right? He's applying the law. Negative in our attitudes. Don't let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Again, think social media. And then he says, next verse, put on. What do you put on? You put off that. Put on, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, this morning when I was confessing my sin with this thermo, I think I realized, I mean, I'm, I'm convicted already, of course, with everything else I've just said, but, but this is where I really felt the conviction of sin today in my life. I mean, do I really use my language, my tongue, to edify people? build people up, to give grace to those people. He says it again, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Negative, right? Positive? Rather, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then he ultimately links it to, therefore, be restored as the image of God, as imitators of God, as beloved children, walk in love. Martin Luther said it this way, the commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or is in a similar peril and you do not save him, there's that just war idea again, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. It will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of the service by which his life might have been saved. Ouch. So right now, we have only thought about moral clarity. And how are you doing? How are we doing? I'm feeling condemned, judged, exposed, horribly fearful. And this is exactly what Paul would say is the abusiveness of the law left at this place right here. For those who know nothing of the law but what we've just said and done, we are now tempted just to survive by going one of two ways. Becoming hedonists and just, dis, just discounting the law as a, as a moral category transcendent from God to us anymore. We do that in Christian circles by contrasting law to gospel or law to grace as if they're opposing forces. They're not. Or we become the Pharisee, where we take the stats, and we're many stats, 
I was going to start the sermon this way, but I'll bring it in now. I mean, one of the studies I did this week was a 55-year study that compared America and its violence to all other similarly uh, uh, legislated and similarly law, like Britain and Sweden and Canada, and it went through about seven lists. Italy, I can remember several of them. And it was discerned that we are by far the most violent of all these civilized nations. Boy, I, I can see what I can do with that, don't you? But then there's another study that shows that over the same 50 period, years of, 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 of history in America, that assaults have gone consistently down every year. That we have far less assaults today than we did 50 years ago. Now, if all we're going to do is look at the first use of the law, and we either become hedonists or become Pharisees, well, the modern-day secularist Pharisee will get on one station and be the most self-righteous, ethical person against that station, and you know what I'm talking about, groups, and one will use the first study and say, you killers. The other will use the second study and say, you killers. Really, church, is that what we're going to do? We're going to get right in the mire with this folk, with all this crap? We're going we're to just become secularized in our use of the law? Where only thing we know to do is to be hedonists or Pharisees? Where the church comes out swinging with all of its ethical self-righteousness? With condemnation? Because that, the law's good at that, left alone. See, that's why we've got to keep going through the cycle of the law. Because nowhere in the Old or New Testament was the law to stop at moral clarity. It was always directed towards bringing us to a place to discern our moral humility. To recognize the grace. You would never know grace is grace except for by moral humility. 1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. My brothers and sisters, my friends, you're a murderer. I'm a murderer. It is impossible to read your Bible and not to conclude that there's not a man, a woman, or child in this room that's not a murderer. Understanding the law in its holistic way. Please don't go the secular route and politicize all this, and secularize it. Your invitation is to go humble with it. To confess, as David did when he murdered uh, Uriah, and when Nathan, you know, uh, when, when David murdered Uriah, think about the sin of that. He'd committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and what does he do? He sends her, her husband so that he can do it to war. And when that didn't do it, he explicitly murdered him. I mean, this is the great King David. How can this guy possibly be a hero of our faith? Will you stop at the first use of the law, and he won't be. But then this is what happens. Listen to the Spirit of God as it redeems David. First it became a heart thing. He writes the psalm that maybe you know, Psalms 51 written on the occasion of his being convicted of his sin by Nathan. That's the psalm we probably use more than any other psalm to confess our sin in the church. And in it he says this, against you and you only, God, have I sinned. 
you are justified in your sentence of me. He doesn't fight it. He doesn't politicize it. Say, oh, I was the king, and I'm of this faction, and he was not a king, and he's of that faction. No, he just goes right to the heart. And we know, of course, what happens. To confess our sin then brings us to the place of crying out, oh, God, who will set me free from this body of sin? It's when you have really experienced the humility of this and the brokenness that's deep and Side of us, it's spiritual at its core. Broken relationship with God. Violence that I've been doing to God every time I've even whispered a violent thought or word to a neighbor. How directly this is related to the offense that we have, have done with God. It's only then that we will then see Christ for who and what Christ is. When he says, I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. When he says that he would fulfill not only just the title head, thou shalt not murder or kill, unjustly kill, but even the jot and tittle of it he's going to fulfill, what he's telling me and you today, if you understood the law as now you do, there was never an attitude of hate or envy or wrongful desire or passion against a neighbor in Christ. Never once, never once did he commit murder, both outwardly, inwardly, and spiritually. And yet, Paul does this incredible play on words in Ephesians that brings us to the table now. Because he's talking about this, for how Christ now is our peace. You would not even know what peace is if you didn't have the moral clarity of the law now hitting you like a ton of bricks. You wouldn't even know what peace is. He says, now Christ is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. He doesn't mean that, you know, uh, that we forget about him. He says, by abolishing their condemning effect that he might create in himself one new person in place of the two, so making peace. And here's where he goes. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There it is. Thereby murdering, that's a word in the Greek, murdering hostility. That is really cool. Jesus Christ, our Savior, for those who are humbled to the point where they know they really need a Savior, I can't just do this myself. And they cry out to God, who will set me free? For those who cry that prayer out, we're told in this play on words that God kills hostility in the cross. How's that? The one who's perfect is murdered, is killed. I mean, he suffered an unlawful death that anyone ever did. And yet he does this while loving the killers. And in loving the killers, God vindicates him as unjustly killed when God raised him from the dead. It's as if if murder could not hold this man under. And there's this great 
incredible event we call the resurrection that points back to the cross and says, that was the death of hostility. It's so powerful. And you would know nothing of it if you keep pitching the law against the gospel. In the three uses of the law, you are now saved by the law. The law clarified, morality clarified, morality humbled, moral humility, which leads to moral salvation because of a moral substitute who kept the law and applied it to you and me. And so this is what we can do with this sermon, a pretty long one, I know. One, if you're a Christian, I hope this sermon had the effect upon you to be thankful. You really did need a Savior. You really are that bad. Two, you really are that sacred to God. You are so sacred that God killed another man for you and yet vindicated the man he killed, his only son, as righteous by raising him from the dead. And therefore he killed all hostility against you. This is that amazing transaction. And I hope as a Christian you're sitting here thinking, okay, maybe never in your life have I ever been so thankful. I really see it. I really needed a Savior. And if that's all this does for you today, praise God. But I'd take it to the next level. Be restored now to the law. Re-embrace this incredible moral perfection that is revealed in God's law, and let's now go out and image it. Let's not be like the world that politicizes morality and secularizes morality and does all this stuff. Let's go out and seek with all of our heart by God's grace, by giving us a new heart and a new spirit in the Holy Spirit to image the moral perfection of God in our world. If you're not a believer, I know everything I said for three-fourths of this sermon, maybe the only way you've heard it said is to condemn me. Please hear this. It is a wrong use of the law to leave it condemning you. And that's Paul's problem with the Ephesus pastors. Always remember, in God's plan, the law was meant to always bring you to a salvation by the law fulfilled in Christ. And the invitation is yours. Amen.